Hello, my name is Michael Jones and I'm here to present to you another bumper episode of the World Ranking International Football Podcast, where myself and journalists Calvin Cornbridge-Kenge, Ibrahim Mustafa, Dan Olowitz and Sharnan provide our reflections on the recently finished AFCON 2023 and the 2023 Asian Cup. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on our socials. We're on X, TikTok and YouTube at the World Ranking Pod and on Instagram at world underscore ranking pod. But for now, please sit back, keep working, driving, commuting, running or whatever else you do when you tune into a podcast and enjoy. After the culmination of the Asian Cup, I'm delighted to be joined again by the same panel I had in the group stage of Dan Olowitz and Sharnen. Dan, first and foremost, how are you and how did you find the tournament? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Good to be back with you, Shao, as well. It was an interesting tournament in a lot of ways. I think that it, it there were positives. I liked that we got to see uh, some countries that we haven't really seen feature at the Asian Cup, not just play, but play well and, and get into the knockouts and, and make some waves there. I think Jordan getting to the final was very impressive. Shao's shaking his head. I think he's got, he's got some like, thoughts and opinions. In, in a good way, that's impressive, yeah. And you have to consider, I mean, I think the big story of this Asian Cup isn't just that you had, let's let's say, minnows, for lack of a better word, doing well, and, and that, yes, um, the, the, the balance shifted in a way, but that so many of, of Asia's established powers really underperformed. Uh, you have to look at Australia getting knocked out, knocked out by South Korea, South Korea getting knocked out by its own coach, essentially. Uh, Japan going out in the quarters to Iran, Iran going out in the semis to Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, losing to to South Korea, and yeah, just uh, I th- I think the fact that it wasn't one of the the quote unquote big five that ended up with the trophy it does show you how difficult Asia is as, as as a continent to to compete in, and I think I mean full credit to to Qatar for winning. Obviously, that doesn't take anything away from them, but it, it does show how I mean th- there is a gap between continental performance and performance at the World Cup and sort of global standing. And and that was very clear this last month. Yeah, pretty telling from what Dan said that none of those big five as such were in the final either. Yeah, it was a bit of a disappointing tournament for a lot of nations. And I think I said on the first Asian Cup show that we did that people from all around the world should watch Asian football because I think they're going to love it by watching this tournament. I should rephrase that now after the tournament's done. You should just watch stoppage time of Asian football because that's all you need. I think 90% of the action, it feels like, certainly from South Korea, come in stoppage time. It's just one of those tournaments where you don't know what's going to happen. You know, even when the full-time whistle looks like it's going to be a result, all of a sudden something happens. It's just very entertaining. A lot of games were entertaining for a neutral, and I think... You know, a lot of people who maybe don't have a horse in the race in terms of Asian football would have watched this tournament and enjoyed it, would have even watched, you know, a team like Japan going behind and clawing their way back or South Korea and their stoppage time brilliance. And even Qatari football was very entertaining to watch. So I think all in all, I found the tournament very entertaining. 
Yeah, I did too. And you mentioned those stoppage time goals and Qatar in the final. Well, we had one of them as Akram Afif scored a hat-trick of penalties in the final for Qatar as they beat Jordan 3-1. They probably went into the final as favourites, albeit Jordan had been on an almighty run to get there. Um, yeah, Dan, I guess I'll just start with you. What were your thoughts on the final itself? And I guess for anybody who hasn't watched and maybe a bit suspicious of, a, of hosts receiving free penalties in the final, were they the right calls? If you, if you go back and look at the replays, like it, it, I think if you're just looking at the scoreline, yeah, you think a hat trick of penalties that is kind of suspicious. But yeah, I think the refs got it right. You know, I, I that is sort of the nature of playing football in West Asia, let's say, and that whether that just between two West Asian teams or even a West and East Asian team, uh, stuff goes down. You know, th- things, I think that it, it, they, those games get really intense. Um, and the result is that, yeah, you can get enough, you can get a lot of penalties. So I think they were all fair. I think the third one may have been a little, you know, I don't, maybe not too soft, but like with anything in Asian football, you sort of have to look at it in context and then you go, yeah, that's fair. No, that's good to hear and that we're not starting the episode with a sort of issue in any kind of conspiracies or anything. But Jordan were fantastic in getting to the final. I don't think many people would have expected them to do so before the tournament. What was key to their success? And I guess the only other thing I'd like to ask to both of you is Qatar. Um, we talk about that big five in Asian football. With back-to-back Asian Cup victories, is that Qatar announcing themselves in that big pack of teams across Asia? Well, certainly in the Asian Cup, I think aside from maybe Saudi Arabia, Qatar were the only team that in every single game they played in the tournament, they just looked up for it. They looked, you know, they pretty much took advantage of the fact that a lot of the other teams looked, I don't want to say sluggish, but they certainly looked like they weren't in full flight the whole tournament. So Qatar being one of those teams that just were up for it, were a big benefit for them, and they got the talent on the pitch, like a thief and everything like that. You mentioned Jordan. As soon as Jordan beat Tajikistan and they they got through, it was kind of a bit of a feeling for the Australians, thinking that could have been us if we beat South Korea, that could have been us going through to the final. That was our opportunity. We really blew it. But Jordan, as I mentioned, are one of those teams that have always been a bit of a banana skin for a lot of opposition teams, and they did what they did well in this tournament, and even in the final, they didn't lay down. So, yeah, it was a good performance from them overall. I agree. I think that you you look at teams like Jordan, teams like Iraq, even in World Cup qualifying, from the Japan perspective, they can go to those games with the overwhelmingly strongest squad, not just in that game, but you know, in, in the continent, and still struggle to get the one 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 nil win or lose one nil or two one we've we've seen it happen plenty of times it's uh, you you can't sleep on west asia tempered tempered in the scorching heat that they play in year in year out and and i i think that one thing we haven't quite touched on is is the timing of the, of this tournament the fact that it came in the middle of the european season when a, a lot of japan's europe based players have already been through a lot and weren't necessarily at full strength. Uh, Koi Takura was not at his best, and we really saw that against Iran. Uh, Deo Hatate was was only recently off of an injury and, and seems to have re-injured himself, and, which was a huge loss for Japan in that quarterfinal. Uh, Kaoru Mitoma was injured, called up. Uh, the JFA took a risk, and it didn't really pay out. Uh, so 
of the many what ifs for Japan is, well, what if this game had, what if this tournament, I should say, had taken place in June and July in China, as it had originally been scheduled. Instead, we got this. And I think that 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 did throw things off a bit. Yeah. Fascinating. You mentioned that Jordan Iraq game because that was, or Jordan and Iraq, because the Jordan Iraq round of 16, was it now? It feels like an eternity ago, but that was one of the games of the tournament and one that really shaped the rest of the tournament because Iraq looked like they were a bit of an unstoppable force at times on their way to the final, but for a hugely controversial second yellow card for Eamon Hussain, who was the golden beat winner. Well, no, it wasn't the golden beat winner, but was the leading the golden beat at the time pretty considerably. I think that was his sixth at the time. And then Jordan mounted two, I think a fifth and a seventh minute stoppage time goal, which was just incredible. And I guess that kind of leads us on nicely to the next section because both of those teams for me in many ways were two of the breakout stars of the tournament but who are the other contenders do you think i'm happy for either of you to kind of start on this one in terms of players teams or managers i know i'm probably repeating myself from the preview pod but tajikistan they even exceeded my high expectations for them i think you know if the if they had what we call the bounce of the ball, the rubber, the green, a little bit more their way in some matches. They could have been in that final instead of Jordan. They maybe even could have taken Qatar a little bit closer than what Jordan did. And I think, you know, I, I know it's a bit of a cliche to say they were the breakout team of the tournament, but even people with high expectations of them were probably thoroughly impressed. To that, I would add, I think Indonesia acquitted themselves very well in this tournament. It, it is one of those countries, I, I think we can look at uh, the the trope in asia is to look at china and india in particular is that sort of oh the sleeping giants the sleeping dragon the sleeping tiger once they get their act together you know with a billion people in each of those countries uh they, they could really do something in football and they never do and there's a lot of in reasons behind that some political some infrastructural some cultural indonesia is also there as a country that has such passion for the game, but has kept tripping over its own laces in terms of uh, what their FAs are doing, just infrastructurally, in terms of how the leagues are managed, uh, how the national teams are managed. And they've, they've never quite been able to live up to their potential. But I think we did see that playing with such a young squad, taking it to Japan, being very, you know, being fearless in that group and getting to the round of 16, where I think that, you know, they more than uh, met their match in, in Australia like that. That was a deserved thumping. But I would hope that Indonesia can uh, take their experience of this tournament and hopefully apply it uh, going forward. Because if they can continue on that path, if they can keep it together like Vietnam have, like Thailand have, then uh, you know, they, they've got the potential to go as far as, as they want to and really start to challenge uh, the stronger West Asian teams and even some of the, and even frustrate the stronger East Asian teams. I'd like to just throw my hat into the ring on this one. I'll try and avoid doing it on most of them, but I think Uzbekistan also deserve a shout out and Abosbek Vizalev. They were a team that was so depleted at their stars and I think they were the only team Qatar didn't beat in normal time in the tournament. I thought they were fantastic and you do wonder how much better they could have done had they had their star players, especially Shamarodov, there for the tournament. In terms of like how you reflect on this tournament, I know you said that there was maybe because of the timings, it did potentially favour 
West Asia a little bit, but what will be the legacy of this tournament, do you think? And what do you think it will be remembered by? This was a, a big tournament for West Asia. I think that that's sort of how it will go down. For better or for worse, uh, the, the narrative is, is now that, you know, Qatar is has now won two straight Asian titles, uh, hosted a, a successful World Cup. And, and so I, I think that, that Qatar is going to be treated in that vein for a while, even though I think that there's still a huge gap between Qatar's performance at the Asian Cup and Qatar's performance in in global competition and World Cup qualifying. Like, I I think that it's hard. It's still hard to take Qatar seriously until they qualify to a World Cup on their own merits. And and so the crowd, you know, the crowd will be a good legacy. Uh, The performance of the West Asian teams will be will be a good legacy. But it is also a bit tiring that the 20 years since 2007, when four Southeast Asian nations uh, co-hosted, uh, will have only had one of these that wasn't in West Asia. And I think that that just shows you where the ship, where the balance of power in Asian football is right now. Uh, and I guess we'll have to see where it goes in 2031 and beyond. But it is, I'll be honest, not just from the time zone perspective, but just I, I think that Asia is a very diverse continent. Um, and I don't think we're quite getting that enough in uh, where these tournaments are hosted. I've said for many years that you need to split, you need to break the AFC up. I, I do think that it is way too unwieldy as a confederation. And we, you have right now uh, 47 eligible members to enter to, to, to qualify for the Asian Cup. And and you, if you look at the time zones, I mean, it stretches from Australia all the way uh, to the Middle East. And it's just not, it's not feasible. It's not sustainable. If I were to do the split, I think I would say West Asia and Central Asia uh, would be one and then or I guess maybe west central south would be one and then you could do east southeast uh, and even Oceania I mean I, I think that it's never going to happen if we're being honest because of course there's the money uh, and I don't think no nobody wants to give up uh, the money nobody wants to give up the the power and influence especially with the expanded world cup and Asia getting uh, nine slots, I believe, or eight or nine, I think as many as 10, uh, when you include the intercontinental qualifiers. And so it's it's difficult, um, but, you know, you look at what uh, Asian football does to players, the immense amount of travel that they have to do for World Cup qualifiers, Asian qualifi- Asian Cup qualifiers, the Asian football, or excuse me, the Asian Champions League, and it, it's a lot. And and unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's we all love international football. We all love the idea of continental football, but the continent has to be sustainable. It, it's tough for other continents too. Of course, Africa uh, has, has so many participants, and they have Afcon every two years, basically. South America is huge, but they have way fewer. Uh, nations. Europe is relatively easy. Yeah, they have a ton of members, but it's relatively easy to travel everywhere in Europe. So I I think that we're stuck with this for now, but eventually FIFA and the AFC are going to have to look at things and and look at player welfare and think about, well, 
can we keep this going? Player welfare and FIFA don't always go into the same sentence too well, unfortunately. But it does make you wonder what that tipping point would or breaking point would be for such action to be, I guess, more seriously considered by those in charge. Before we do move on to those World Cup qualifiers that you mentioned, because I think that's kind of going to be our next focus going forwards on Asian football in the near future, this kind of leads into it nicely, but do we know what ramifications there have been from the tournament? Have we lost any managers, players? Will Are we likely to see very different squads going forwards in the near future? Jurgen Klinsmann in South Korea, whose performance was, was thoroughly panned uh, by fans, by the media. He's done such a poor job managing that side. They got as far as they did. Well, you know, it wasn't because of Klinsman. It was in many ways in spite of Klinsman. Uh, and it was because of the, the, the depth and the talent that they have. So, I mean, there's been uh, some drama at the Korean Football Association. There's a lot of face-saving that's, that's going on in South Korea right now. Try to account for how this tournament went down. And, and so that's going to be a mess. Japan is, is less, less so. I think there's a lot of people who aren't happy with how Hajime Moriyasu did. But so far as he has the confidence of the JFA uh, and doesn't really have enough criticism going against him, you know, he's going to stay on. So really, I think South Korea is the biggest one. For anybody listening who's wondering where Shannon is, unfortunately, it looks like there's been a, right, you mentioned that there's been a thunderstorm in Australia. So hope he's all right, but we've lost him for the time being. Looking ahead to the World Cup qualifiers, I mean, it's just fascinating. You mentioned the amount of teams. It's basically doubled from the allocation AFC normally has for the World Cup, and that will be in 2026 across Mexico, USA, and Canada. And I don't mean it to contradict your point, but earlier about the need for Asian football to split up into two, but does this maybe generate more excitement in World Cup qualifiers than there's ever been in Asian football because of the accessibility to other teams to get in? But even with that, you look at Jordan, who get to the final, for example, and they look like they're on the verge of, missing out from qualifying to the next round of the World Cup qualifiers. So it's a, it seems a real lottery at the moment. It's a group-to-group thing. I mean, I, I can only truly speak on, on from the, the Japan perspective, obviously, but Japan has come a long way from 25 years ago when, or I guess more 26, 27 years ago at this point, when qualifying for France uh, 98 was such a huge thing that was a game changer and even that required you know a a continental playoff yes there is more there's more opportunities for asian countries to go to this world cup but at the same time if you're a top country that just means that you're guaranteed to get in it used to be that you know there might be a group of death with japan in the last cycle there was uh, japan saudi arabia and australia in that final group and you knew that of those three Two are going to Qatar and one is going to have to you know, go through a continental playoff, maybe even intercontinental playoff. Now, sort of the mystery is gone. Like we know roughly four or five of the countries that Asia will be sending to 2026. And if you're on the bubble for those other 3.5 or you know 4.5 slots, I guess it depends on how you're counting it. Yeah, you're excited. I think if you're Jordan, if you're uh, Iraq, if you're Thailand, if you're Oman, if you're Iran, if you're Uzbekistan, then like, yes, you're you're very excited about the possibility of going to the World Cup when it might not have been a guarantee in the past. 
for Japan, for South Korea, for Australia, for Saudi Arabia, for Iran, you know, you knew you were going to get there. And so now the, now the, the final round of qualifying, in my opinion, has less excitement. There's less anticipation. You know, there's more of a focus on team building and experimentation, but it just doesn't, it, it just feels like it's senioritis. I, I don't know if that term sort of works to your UK listeners, but where you've gotten your acceptance letter to college or university, you know you're in, you just have to coast until graduation. And I feel like that's where we're going to be. And I don't know if that's going to make a strong, make for a stronger confederation on the whole. That's really interesting. And yeah, it's definitely not a UK term, but as soon as you said it, it kind of made sense, but then it made it even more relevant. So I appreciate the ex- explanation a lot, Dan. Yeah, and I guess just before we go, I mean, looking ahead to Asian football, so we're two games into the second round of three rounds of World Cup qualifying. So this goes on until June, where there's nine groups of four and the top two from each group qualify to the final round of World Cup qualifiers, which will then be a third, then fourth round. But some teams from the third round qualify. It gets more complicated, so we'll just focus on the third round for now. But there's, uh, I think there's three groups of six teams that will be there, and the top two from each of them qualify for the World Cup. And then there's a fourth round, which is kind of a continental playoff format, but a round robin. I think before I let you go, Dan, I, first and foremost, I just want to thank you, Ryan Walters, Mubarak and Sharnen, of course, for all of your help throughout the Asian Cup. I don't think we would have been able to provide an understanding to listeners or me even have a anywhere near as good an understanding myself without you all being here so thank you so much I guess just for you looking forward to what what does the next few months look like for you in terms of work in sports and what what will you be keeping your eyes on in the next few months now I think that Japan will obviously have its World Cup qualifying two really fascinating uh, fixtures against North Korea in in March with the possibility of the uh, of the second game uh, taking place in Pyongyang, that will be the first time since 2011, and that is a bizarre experience. And hopefully, we'll see if it actually happens. Um, but if it does, that'll be must watch TV. It, it's incredible. You actually you can go on YouTube and find that 2011 game. I do highly recommend it. So we'll have that. Obviously, Olympic qualifying is a big one. Uh, Nidesco Japan will play North Korea home and away for the spot in the women's tournament later this month. The under-23 Asian Cup will take place uh, later this spring, and, and that's where the men will hopefully uh, qualify again and, and try to get a little bit further than they did in 2021, where they lost in the, in the bronze medal game. More locally, uh, the J-League is, is really entering a new era. This will be season 31 Last year was, you know, the 30th anniversary season was sort of monumental in, in just in terms of celebrating where the leagues come uh, and also sort of the return from the, all the pandemic restrictions that we had. Uh, and it really does show how much football has grown here and how much it can grow in any country that has the resources and takes the right approach into growing the game at a grassroots level. Uh, the fact that we have these youth pipelines, we have these development uh, programs, we have the infrastructure, uh, two beautiful new stadiums uh, opening this spring, one uh, at uh, San Francisco Hiroshima's new stadium just opened last weekend, uh, Zwegen Kanazawa's new stadium will open in March, and then uh, Vivare Nagasaki's new ground will uh, actually be ready for October. And just the fact that we've gone from the 92 Asian Cup, 
which was hosted in Hiroshima on you know, this, the old uh, Hiroshima Big Arch. And it, it's a tracked athletic stadium and it doesn't look good. It didn't age well. We've gone from that to most of the J League having specialized football stadiums with, with all the trappings and all the amenities and everything you would expect. Uh, it, it does show how much countries where football wasn't the big, you know, necessarily big sport can can develop and can grow and, and, and can improve. So it, it's going to be a great year for the J-League. That, that can be maybe another conversation, but I do recommend uh, following uh, the J-Leagues on social media. They show f- or four games around, I should say, on YouTube for free. The season starts on the 23rd, and there's, there's never been a better time to, to get on that bandwagon. Yeah, it just reminds me of being a kid and when it was the World Cup in Japan and South Korea, having that, you have that page before you get to the teams and I had the stickers for each of those new stadiums. And I remember how brand spanking new they looked at the time, but it's fantastic to hear about the new infrastructure. I'm going to let you go partially because we've got a minute 50 left on our Zoom call, but thank you so much for all your contributions, Dan. And yeah, best of luck covering Japan in everything going forwards. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, so I'm joined by Ibrahim and Calvin again. For Ibrahim, it feels like we've gone full circle. Uh, I guess just first and foremost, commiserations on the final. Ivory Coast are the African champions. They defeated Nigeria 2-1 in what was a tense, but a final decided on quality. Yeah, it was uh, really disappointing from Nigerian point of view because it just all the build up and all the expectations of I mean I live in London and we're feeling it over here how much how much it meant I imagine back home in Nigeria it was obviously massive as well and just any Nigerian throughout the world would have been fixating on that game and thinking like yes this is the moment to win another African title but don't use the cliche that they didn't show up on the day but they definitely played within themselves for far too much of that game I mean they kicked off and it was all Ivory Coast for the first half hour odd. And then not a lucky break, but a break, you know, in a sense to go one nil up from a set piece. And you're thinking that's something to hold on to. That's something to encourage you to kick on and go on and win this final, you know, especially as it came before before half time, you've got time to reset, come out in the second half and, you know, really turn the screw and like finish this, end this game, you know, but no, they just sort of thought, well, you know, one nil was enough and it, wasn't you know when you're in that sort of that atmosphere I don't know who knows maybe the atmosphere played a part but you're in that environment you're against the home side and they are doing everything they can to make sure that they win this game and the, you know, the equaliser felt inevitable and once that went in you kind of felt uh, you knew which way it was going yeah it was an inevitable feeling I think I could agree with that and yeah like I said commiserations really because Nigeria had a fantastic tournament Calvin it's great to have you back on as well how are you doing and how did you find the rest of the tournament since we last spoke it was a wonderful tournament it was really really fantastic full of entertainment full of you know surprises and uh like I said last time you cannot predict who wins the Africa Cup of Nations you you can't just predict 
everybody's ready to break a bone and whoever you know wants it more takes it on that particular day but of course i'm not saying nigeria didn't want it more they also wanted it i i was i'm a huge fan of victor osman and i really wanted him to lift that trophy unfortunately things didn't go uh like you know i wished so it, it was really a fantastic tournament overall I did enjoy it. A lot of things that we learned, and of course, from the management side of view, the organization point of view, they did fantastic. Over 100 plus countries were watching the Africa Cup of Nations for the first time. That that's massive uh, for CAF and of course for, for for African football. So what I believe is that the quality that we saw in Ivory Coast, I wouldn't be surprised if an African nation wins the 2026 FIFA World Cup. It's a massive statement, but, you know, I think what we saw with Morocco in 2022, there's certainly reason to support that. And it's interesting because you mentioned that it wasn't Victor Simeon's tournament in the end, although it was very close, but it was Sebastian Haller's tournament, Ibrahim. And he kind of symbolised this tournament, you know, somebody who, who battled cancer and recovered to play at the greatest stage of his career and have that greatest moment. And very much symbolised like Ivory Coast's journey in this tournament too. This was a story of redemption and recovery under a new coach switching midway through, something that's frankly unheard of. Yeah, obviously it's been a fan- it's a fantastic story for Sebastian Heller and I just got to say shout out to him. Just everything he's been through, you know, it's been well documented and again, to use the cliche, it's why we love the sport is that they be able to pre- produce stories like that and that is... W- of beauty of football really they can produce stories like that and it's it's sort of like the antidote to i don't know how how many people are fans of the of the american football in the nfl and in the super bowl was this big thing about this big celebrity who happens to be going out with one of the players and that almost seems like really manufactured and sort of like almost not really real but then you've got the contrast with what happened with Haller and ivory coast of winning that tournament and it feels more pure in a sense so yeah definitely and yeah it is a microcosm of their whole tournament and the whole idea that they were dead and buried and pretty much gone from the tournament they were packing their bags after that equatorial guinea result and even when we were last on doing it this put together we all said oh yeah that's you know they've got through but that's going to be the end of their tournament when they face when they face Senegal but as it turns out it wasn't and you know they've ended it on the the, the brightest possible note that they could you know then fair play to them well done I have to say through gritted teeth <laughs> well no they're a very nice way for somebody speaking through gritted teeth and Calvin just before we move on Ivory Coast finishing third in the group is a good illustration of how this tournament format works now where a team can have a poor group stage and still recover to win the tournament do you think that makes the tournament better or worse in a way in terms of merit i think i think it makes it competitive in a way you now have got a team that is almost dead and buried of course it's coming from the dead and comes back and they're ready to give everything you have a second chance and they're able to give everything and it, it, it actually tells a very good story you know this is a team that was dead and buried and then they just resurrect from the dead come back beat the team uh the the the, the, the defending champions beat the favorites and lift the trophy it's never happened before. I, I, if it has, then it is very rare, you know. So it, it doesn't really take away the competitiveness per se, but for me, I take it as, you know, exciting and it actually makes uh, the tournament more competitive. Like you, you you just don't know what to expect anymore. Anything can happen at that point. So, uh, yeah. So I think it, it, it was an interesting one. It, it wasn't an interesting one and it added some color to the tournament. 
Yeah, it certainly did. And it wasn't just Ivory Coast who added colour to the tournament. There were a number of breakout stars in terms of teams, players, managers. Ibrahim, who really stood out for you in that sense? And I guess those in particular who wouldn't have come to you the forefront of our attention before when we did our previews, for example. Probably the two Angola players, Gelson Dala and Mabalulu, the two of them were just such so exciting to watch in their games. In their early stages, as they progressed into the getting through to the last stage of the tournament, topping their group and everything. Two of the more exciting players, I'd like to say. I mean, they're, they're on the older scales. They're not really like young breakout players. But yeah, they were two players I was really excited to look at. Similarly, he, obviously he's well-known in South Africa, but wrote Williams in goal. He's had a fantastic tournament and uh, again, not come out of nowhere, but would have known about him before the tournament. And now they're just like, this guy's this penalty specialist. Even in that third place playoff, you're looking for, you're hoping it would go to penalties just to see what else he could do. Definitely it has to be Mapululu. He's, he's one guy that people never expected to do what he did at the Africa Cup. Girls on Dallas, well, Ibrahim has said, those two were fantastic. Simon Adingra, I did expect him to perform like he did. Of course, the first two games he was injured, but I've watched him play for Brighton. And yeah, so I was I was looking forward to, to watch him, but I didn't expect him to come out like the way he did against Nigeria, like the way he did against Senegal and, and, and also against Congo. He was just fantastic to watch. And I, I think those three were really, you know, the players that did it for me. Williams as well. Um, Williams from Nigeria. He was fantastic. Uh, I think he also deserved the, the player of the tournament. Um, I mean, you have a defender who was, you know, ready to give everything on the pitch for, for, for his country and went all the way. And he was also scoring the goals in the final. He scored uh, what would have been, uh, you know, a match-winning goal for Nigeria. Unfortunately, things didn't go uh as 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 they hoped yeah so for me those uh the, the four um gelson dala mabululu william ikong as well as uh simon or simon and dingra were the best players for me they i really enjoyed watching them just quick one on Adingra. I mean, the way his perfor- his performance in the final was sort of extra special considering you know we talk about sort of breakout players so aina for Nigeria had had a fantastic tournament up until that final and then he was just absolutely roasted for the whole game by Adingra in that game so it just shows how good Adingra was you know when he actually made one of the better players in the tournament look like that in that final. Halaya gets all the headlines and rightly so given what he's been through but Adingra returning was equally important to Ivory Coast's success and yeah Adingra spoke really openly with the press after the tournament talking about difficulties he'd had that you know, a lot of his childhood wasn't really in his kind of control and where he lived and where he was moved around to, kind of reading between the lines there. But yeah, I think for what he's come through to be so central on a big stage has been absolutely fantastic. So yeah, what a lovely tribute from all of us, I guess, to Edingra. But in terms of the tournament and how we look at it, what will you remember this tournament by? I mean, for me, I will remember this as the most dramatic tournament in living memory. I'm not saying all the games were the highest quality or the best games to watch, but from about the 80th minute, they tended to be. Yeah, definitely the unpredictedness of the of the tournament. Yeah, people always remember it as one tournament that you can't predict. Uh, it was very difficult from the first game. I mean, I'll give an example, Zambia versus Tanzania. I didn't expect Zambia to struggle against Tanzania and even come from, I mean, we've always been, the, you know, that team to beat teams from East Africa, you know, but I, I, I it was shocking, you know, it was shocking and our, our performance was disastrous and 
people should will definitely remember this AFCON as one that was very unpredictable, one that produced quite some good talents. Um, you know, the display was fantastic. And also not forgetting the refereeing. I, I, I think it was fantastic. The referees were on top of the of, of the game. And uh, just to mention, the lady who was, you know, the second assistant referee in, in the finals from Zambia, and she actually set a record. She became the first uh, female assistant referee to officiate uh, in, a, in a final. So it keeps on, you know, growing and do bring in these new things that, you know, the world has never seen. And, and I think that is what we should also remember about Ivory Coast uh, Afghan. And also kudos to, to Ivory Coast. Most of my friends that traveled are saying good things about the organization of the tournament. The roads were fantastic. The, the accommodation was fantastic. The people, I mean, the hospitality was just awesome. So I think they have set a standard. They have set a standard, like the CAF president said, he promised us that this was going to be the best Afghan ever. And now he's telling us that the Morocco one is even going to be better. So it, it, it keeps on getting better here. Yeah. So it was a fantastic tournament for me. That unpredictability in itself has, whilst it's been, created some miraculous stories for some teams, Calvin, it's been at the serious cost for others and it's led to, I think almost half of the teams changing managers or being in the process of changing managers. Would you just be able to tell us about some of those changes that have happened across Africa? And is this, do we expect the sort of African footballing landscape to change in terms of who those superpowers are after this tournament? Yeah, so it it, it all goes back to, you know, scripting the Afghan. Uh, Like I said last time, you cannot script the Africa Cup of Nations. It's it's just a different tournament. So, you know, most of these coaches, you know, most of these uh, African FAs came into this tournament, you know, with a script. Yeah, we're going to beat Zambia, we, we beat Congo. That is Morocco now. We beat Congo, we beat Tanzania, finish top of the group, go to the semifinals, win it like we did at the World Cup. You have a script, right? And then things don't go like the way you expect them to go. And that brings about frustrations and i think that is what happens to most of the um most of the african federations uh yeah so we saw about uh should be should be 12 if i'm not mistaken 12 managers were sacked while the competition was going on you get knocked out and you are sacked the, the next day that that just tells you that the, the, the afghan cannot be predicted and if you go with a script you will be heartbroken so that is really that what happened. And we hope people who not come with scripts next time, just come and play football and uh, expect anything, expect anything. But it was disappointing, of course, uh, to countries like Algeria, Tunisia um, and Morocco. Morocco, I take them as the biggest flops in this, in this tournament. And for those that sacked their coaches, Ivory Coast, uh, uh, a little bit justifiable. <laughs> the, the sacking was just fired because they've won, but had they not won, I don't think everybody was going, anybody was going to say, you know, they did well to sack the coach. People are going to criticize them. So, yeah, certain things happen like that. But, yeah, it was it was a good tournament. It's, it's actually difficult to, to explain and say, yo, this one was sacked because of this. Yeah, the, the only answer I've been giving people is that you came with a script and it didn't work. You don't come with a script to the Afghan, you'll be heartbroken and you end up sucking people. So that is exactly what happened. Yeah. I guess, Ibrahim, like the, these tournaments often are meant to be sort of learning experiences, most for maybe minnows entering the tournaments for the first time playing against these bigger nations. But 
like Harvin said, with Algeria, Tunisia, Ghana, this can be said, actually, these learning experiences must be taken from the bigger powerhouses across African football going ahead to 2026 and to World Cup qualification, which we'll get on to very shortly. Yeah, absolutely. But like Alvin says, I mean, you can't, you can't, if you come in expecting something, you know, like these big teams do, the environment of the AFCON itself is not, unlike anything else. It's not like the qualification will be very different for the World Cup because you they have that sort of distance. You know, you can, the top players will fly in, they'll do their job for 90 minutes or two games, and it's usually two games in a week, 180 minutes get the job done, fly back to their comfort of Euro- their European houses or wherever. In the, the environment of AFCON, you've got so much riding on. You've got all that sort of home pressure as well. You have to perform at the AFCON. You're in this close to the environment. You've got all the other teams around. You've got so much going on and all the eyes are on you. you can't always run smoothly, for all, the, especially for all the big teams. And, you know, that's where the shocks occur. And especially with this, like the new format, as we say, of having that, that third place qualification gives teams who, you know, you could lose your first two games and think, actually, if we get something of the final game, we could still qualify. And so there's that extra motivation for the smaller teams and that extra fear going in for the bigger sides. And then it's whether they're able to deal with that at all. Yeah, that's a really good point in terms of those final games. Yeah, I guess before I let you go, we've just got a few minutes. Next up for all these teams is a shift and focus to the World Cup in 2026. Calvin, just starting with you, I guess Zambia is a kind of good place to start as as a as an example too. How is this looking? Is this an exciting prospect for teams, especially with more African countries being able to qualify? Uh, people shouldn't be surprised when you see Africa winning uh, the next FIFA World Cup. I mean, Morocco reached the semi-finals, and the quality that we saw at Afcon, Morocco couldn't even go past the round of sixteen. That should that that should tell you something. Yeah, so. Uh, I feel with more slots now given to Africa, nine teams plus one more that could, you know, qualify after the play after the intercontinental. I mean, the continental playoffs it gives us a very, very good chance. Uh, from a Zambian point of view, we are really hoping that we are really hoping and praying that maybe now, finally, this is our time. Is the time we can stop Morocco and just go to the, to the FIFA World Cup. Yeah, so it will be exciting. It will be exciting. I'm very, very excited. I, I think I should be traveling with the team uh, in, in the qualifiers and, I'm, I, and I hope to document everything and just make sure uh, I, I, I have everything with me and see it firsthand and not be taught that Zambia qualified for the World Cup. Yeah, so the prospects of, uh, of Africa winning the World Cup uh, I'm very, very confident. I don't know where I'm getting it from, but I just feel it that 2026 could be the time Africa will do something and just bring it home. Yeah, so very much excited for the World Cup qualifiers. It's it, it's always exciting. It's always exciting when the qualifiers are being played. Sometimes the African World Cup qualifiers are more entertaining than the actual World Cup. It's funny, you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's such a brilliant yeah. advert for the qualifiers, isn't it? And Ibrahim, I mean... What would back that up alone is Nigeria and South Africa to the semi-finalists are in the same group. Beery, the second and third best team in Africa at the moment, are having to play each other twice for one guaranteed slot in the World Cup. And I think there's other cases, you know, Senegal and DR Congo two teams who have been brilliant recently. Yeah, totally. There's no margin for error in qualifying, really, because, you know, it is even now with more teams being allowed in, every group is only the top team qualifying. So you really need to make sure you get that than not having to navigate that playoff. So, um, 
yeah, you've got two good teams in there. One of them is probably likely to miss out. So, you know, it really, like I say, no margin for everyone. You really need to be on your game in these qualifiers. As Calvin said, it can be quite an entertaining prospect. Uh, we'll be bringing you a lot more coverage in terms of when those World Cup qualifiers resume in March. But I think we've provided extensive coverage. Well, you, you two and Alistair and Eric, um, Dean, who also came on, were fantastic for the coverage. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for all your help throughout the past month. It's been absolutely fantastic to hear your different perspectives and experiences and takeaways from the tournament. And yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, look forward to speaking to you both again. Cheers. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thanks, Michael. Have a good day. Thank you very much for listening. And I sincerely hope that you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate us or thumbs us on podcasting platform which you listen to us on and follow or subscribe both on here and our social medias as it will really help us grow we'll be back very soon to bring you the next phase of our podcast which between international breaks will dive deep into understanding some of those countries you may not know an awful lot about beginning with Antigua and Barbuda until then see you soon